All right, Laura. Well, first of all, um, just wanted to say thank you for for doing this. It's uh, it's nice to meet you and and welcome on. It's good to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Um, as we were talking about just before we started recording, I I wanted to maybe start with your Genesis story in the nonprofit world or just getting involved in in children's work. Um, generally, how did that start? Have you always been interested in the, the kind of work that CASA does or how, what, what drove you initially to get involved in this kind of business? Well, I am a lawyer by training and um, moved to Austin to go to law school hmm. and then was working in a law firm for a long time after law school. But during that time that I was working in the private sector, um, I was always volunteering for different organizations, never for CASA, ironically, but um, volunteering for a lot of different organizations, serving on boards. Um, I'm a member of the Junior League of Austin, so I was very active in that organization. And over time came to feel that what I was doing as a volunteer was more fulfilling to me in a whole host of ways than what I was doing for a living. So I made a career change more than 20 years ago now um, and left the private practice of law to go to work in nonprofits. Mm. And um, I started in a nonprofit organization that serves um, survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. That's where I began. I came to CASA in 2007. So this is my 14th year here. And, and I was hired as the CEO. So I have been in this role now for 14 years. And what draws me, what drew me initially to CASA were two things. One, my whole nonprofit career and the majority of my volunteer work before that was all focused on vulnerable people, children, women, um, people who are vulnerable to abuse for no reason that they have brought on themselves. Um, so that piece of this mission drew me to CASA. And then I was raised um, in a family that believed in volunteerism. I believe in volunteerism. Um, volunteering has been a gigantic and enriching part of my own life. Hmm. So the mission of CASA to recruit and screen and train and really empower regular people from the community to be the advocates for best interest for kids is so powerful. Um, and that kind of community engagement and um, sort of justice making um, at an individual level for individual people in the community to make a difference really appeals to me and yeah. is and is the most powerful part of CASA in my view. And I want to get into the work that CASA does specifically. I, I also, before we do that, I would love to get your story of making that switch from the private practice into nonprofit. I feel like I have a plenty of friends or people who I know who are 
at that phase in life where they've been working in the private sector, they've primarily been laboring for money for a decade or more and uh, are finding that work less and less fulfilling. Not that it ever was, but it had been serving a, a function for um, a period of time after college. What what were the, if you can recall, what were the, if any, uh, steps or psychological transitions that you went through to make that actual leap from leaving the private practice altogether and, and joining the nonprofit world? That is an insightful question, um, especially about the sort of psychology of it, because, you know, rightly or wrongly, whatever you may think of lawyers, um, <laughs> there is there is a prestige um, element of practicing law. And there is um, certainly the compensation is um, very good relative to the nonprofit field. And um, and I had served on boards of directors for nonprofits. And I can remember um, an acquaintance saying to me when I was talking about leaving private practice and going to work for nonprofits, um, I can remember someone saying to me, Laura, do you think you will enjoy working for a board instead of being on the board? Um, which was an interesting question. Another um, longtime nonprofit CEO in Austin, when I first started this job, said to me, oh, Laura, how are you ever going to do this job? Lawyers are so risk averse, and you have to be able to take some risks to do this kind yeah. of work. Um, so, so all of which is to say, it, it was, um, I, I spent probably a year thinking about, is this really what I want to do? Um, what would be the likely changes to my lifestyle, to my network? You know, what would be the implications for me? And then talking to a lot of people. Um, by that, by the time I was ready to do that, I had been in Austin a while. I had been active in the community. And so I was lucky to have people either who had done what I was thinking about or um, friends who were um, longer tenured and better connected in the nonprofit world than I was at the time, who really had a good perspective. And um, so I talked to a lot of people about it. And ultimately, for me, I am a mission-driven person. And to work that hard, that many hours, with that level of stress, um, to be a professional person, I need to believe in the mission <laughs> that I'm working on. Um, that is my personality. And another feature is that I really like variety. I one of the things I so appreciate about my role is that there are always new challenges, always, you know, something around the corner that you don't necessarily see coming. And um, and each day, each hour is different than the one before. And in the private practice of law, there's a for me, at least, I felt like there was a lot of sort of 
oh, yes, I'm going to do this same thing again for a different client. Um, and and it wasn't quite as, um, it didn't offer me the variety yeah. that I was looking for. That being said, it must have been a somewhat of a challenge, if, if, if this is true, of recognizing that your lifestyle might change or that, you know, material uh, treadmills that you're on to continue to level up and level up and level up with nicer cars, nicer homes, et cetera, was going to have to take a backseat to your, your mission driven lifestyle and, and profession. If that is true, how did you, how did you, how did you conclude that it, that, it, that was okay with you? I, I feel like this is a story that is similar for a lot of professionals that get to this point where they're comfortable but their stress out is all hell at their corporate job or their lawyer lawyers uh, lawyer job or other white collar work. It doesn't mean that much to them, and but they're surrounded by people who are driving nice cars and have vacation homes and are going to Europe once or twice a year. I don't know if any of this is ringing a bell, but if any of it is, how did you personally walk through that to con- make the decision you finally did? Well. Um... I will say I am fortunate, very fortunate that um, I didn't have any debt from undergrad. Um, I went to the UT law school, which is a great law school, and I was in state. And so it was a great and not very expensive law school. Um, So I was very fortunate about that and was, you know, paid off those loans. pretty quickly. And so I was lucky that um, my my situation was very um, easy. I don't have children. So Mm -hmm. I was, you know, just thinking about myself. And, um, and um, those kinds of things, um, nice cars, nice homes. Um, I don't necessarily feel competitive about those kinds of things. Um, so I, um, really and truly it was more about in terms of, from a financial standpoint, just kind of thinking about, you know, doing the math over your whole working life. Um, and so, you know, I may work for longer yeah. um, than I might have if I had been in the private practice of yeah. law this whole time. Um, but um, that's fine. I actually really enjoy what yeah. I'm doing, so it's okay. And that that switch when you made it, was it in your mind a, this is a permanent life decision? This isn't, you know, I'll try this for a year or two and maybe go back into the private practice. This is a permanent shift in how I'm going to be allocating my time and energy. Is that how you thought about it or not necessarily? Yes, that's how I thought about it. I, I am really glad I went to law school. I'm really grateful to have that education. It has benefited me in a thousand different ways. And I'm grateful for the time that I spent in private practice. I learned a lot, um, but I did not, I have never once thought, oh, I wonder what it would be like to go back and practice law. That does not appeal to me. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So tell me about the, 
what it was or, or when you made that switch eventually coming to Casa, what, what was it about the work? I guess before we get to Casa, it sounded like you did do, Casa wasn't the first place you went to when you made that switch, right? Correct. So, so what's that story? Where did you go from private practice into, into what? So the first nonprofit job I had when I left the law was at an organization now known as SAFE. At the time, it was Safe Place. They've had a a merger and a name change and a lot of um, organizational change since I was there. Um, But I had been involved with that organization for a long time. Um, Safe Place, as it was known then, was itself the result of a merger of the Center for Battered Women and the Austin Rape Crisis Center. Mm. And I had been a hotline volunteer for the Center for Battered Women, and I had been on the board of directors of the Austin Rape Crisis Center, Hmm. both of these at the same time during the time I was practicing law. And in fact, I was the president of the Rape Crisis Center board when we started working on the merger that ultimately created Safe Place in uh, 1998, I believe. I can't remember exactly. Um, and so I knew the folks at Safe Place really well mm-hmm. as a result of having been very deeply involved for a long time. Um, and they knew me. And um, so when I left the law, I was really so lucky um, to get to um, join that organization, which is a really fine organization here in town. And I started in a fundraising role and had a lot of different jobs in my five years there, um, but always involved in fundraising, grant writing, you know, the the very essential things for any nonprofit. So I was there for almost five years, and then I went to a statewide nonprofit organization headquartered here in Austin, the Texas Council on Family Violence. Mm. And they are an advocacy organization lobbying the legislature on behalf of domestic violence organizations and survivors of domestic violence throughout Texas. And so I went to the Texas Council on Family Violence, and I was their public policy director and worked on legislative initiatives, appropriations um, on behalf of survivors of domestic violence and organizations that serve them. Mm. And so I was there for almost four years, and then I came to CASA, and I've been here ever since. Cool. And before we get to CASA, I want for people that hear about you know, these nonprofits that do this helpful work is a resource for people who are going through amazingly traumatic uh, moments in their lives. If you're a, a policy director and your responsibility is to is to be the liaison with the legislature, it, it seems like such a daunting task to know what to do or how to help people who are who have gone through this kind of trauma. What, in your judgment, in your experience, it, it was the best use of your energy and your time to really you know, frame the problem in a way that would resonate with the legislature or people who are in the the Texas State House. 
Um, and what's the best way to leverage resources to help people who are in circumstances like that? It's always about at its core understanding people's stories well enough to tell those stories in a compelling and convincing way to someone else. And that's true whether you are lobbying the legislature or writing a grant or recruiting volunteers. You have to be able to understand in, in broad strokes the stories of the people that you're trying to serve and then be able to tell those stories in a way that makes the people in a position to help want to do so. Yeah. And so in that particular job at the Texas Council on Family Violence, um, I had come from an organization that served survivors of domestic violence. So I had a lot of knowledge from that previous experience. I had been a volunteer on the hotline. I had talked with um, women in those terrible situations. And so I had a lot of sort of anecdotal experience of my own work. Um, And then you're always... um, you are always responsible to get information from others. And so, you know, we at TCFE um, were very conscientious or tried to be in deeply understanding the situations and needs on the ground of the organizations that were serving survivors and kind of what trends were they seeing in needs and in law enforcement response, et cetera. And then, you know, trying to distill and communicate those in a way that would make people at the Capitol want to help. And, you know, then it becomes you have to know your audience and know, you know, for this person or that person, what are what are the important things to them? Yeah. Yeah. I think if if you have no personal experience, even through a friend or working at a hotline like you had, it's probably hard to imagine what someone who has gone through that has experienced and what would be helpful for them um, afterwards. Was it in your, in your experience, like the, the help that you were able to provide to these people, was it just, you know, an ability to have somebody to talk to who could plug them into other resources to try to get them through this traumatic event? Was it something else? What, what do you think, if there was anything that really, in your judgment, could help these people, what, what were those things? Well, it depends on the person yeah. who's seeking help and kind of where they are. You know, a lot of times it is very concrete. What they need is emergency shelter. And so on that hotline um, at SAFE, you know, that's how you get access to the emergency shelter. So a lot of times it was about, you know, 
they are ready, they need to leave. And do you have space for them? Yeah. Um, they need somewhere to go. Right. Yeah. Um, sometimes they need just to have someone to talk to, um, to sort of process what they're going through. And, and a lot of times I think there were people who called sort of wondering, is this, is this abuse? Is this mistreatment? Am I, am I crazy? You know, and so really kind of having someone safe, um, to talk to you yeah. who doesn't know your situation and right. doesn't know your partner and isn't going to tell your partner. And, um, so a lot of times it was really just about trying to listen and help people process. Um, a lot of times it was about safety planning. Someone calls and they are not yet ready to leave, but they are foreseeing that they will need to and sort of talking with them about, okay, so what sorts of important documents do you need? Um, do you have your own cell phone in your own name? Do you have a car? Um, how will you get your children out? Um, and sort of safety planning with someone. Um, and then other times people are just looking for referrals. I need a lawyer. I yeah. need a protective order. How do I get that? And so it really depends on where the person is in their own experience. Yeah. And absent an organization like that being available, there's nothing for these people, I assume, right? I mean, I, they can consult the police, I assume, with, with the, the criminal act. But in terms of where to go and what to do for them personally... There, not, yeah. there are, thankfully, more and more resources, um, and there is a national hotline, um, a national domestic violence hotline that anyone from the nation all over can call. Um, and But yes, I mean, people need to know who can I reach out to when I need help. Yeah. So... The the time in your life when you actually started working for Casa when you when you came here, tell me about the the opportunity. Is is this something that you know, you had some familiarity with Casa and had decided, you know, if an if an opening ever presents itself at that organization, that's really wh where I want to work. Or what what is the what's the story that actually transitioned you to bring you here exactly? Well, I was familiar with CASA. CASA of Travis County was established 35 years ago. Um, and there is definitely, um, through domestic violence situations, there's definitely intersection between the organizations with, with which I had previously worked and CASA. Um, so I definitely knew of CASA, and I knew my predecessor oh. as well. Um and I had reached a point in my career, um, so I had been working in nonprofits for about nine years, and at that same time, I had been um, moving up in leadership as a volunteer at the Junior League of Austin, and I had been first the treasurer and then the president of that organization. And um, so I knew a lot of people and I had had by that point 
a lot of leadership experience and kind of felt like, okay, I have never been the executive director or CEO of a nonprofit, but I have done all of the pieces of that role. Yeah. Um, and so honestly, I was sort of looking like, okay, is there an opportunity for that sort of position? And my predecessor, I ran into her um, after she had left CASA and, and unbeknownst to me, they were in a search, um, process at that time. And she said, Laura, you should go, you should apply for my old job. And, um, and then another friend had reached out to me and said, Hey, CASA's looking for an executive director. You should apply for that. And so I did. And for people that may have heard the acronym or the the name of CASA, but don't really know much about the general work that that the people here and all of its volunteers do, um, how how would you frame that to the Austin community and just generally the the aims of of CASA and the the goals of the of the institution? Yes. So CASA is an acronym. It stands for <laughs> Court Appointed Special Advocates. And our mission is to recruit, screen, train, and provide professional supervision and support for community volunteers who are appointed by judges to be the advocate for the best interest of kids who are in the child protective services system. So kids who have been abused or neglected. Um, the Texas law provides that when child protective services, a state agency charged with investigating child abuse, when they determine that a child is at risk of harm in their home, um, they can, they, CPS, Child Protective Services, can file a lawsuit, basically, that's what it is, to get a judge's permission to remove that child from their home. And the law requires that children in that situation have an attorney to represent what they want and a guardian ad litem to advocate for their best interest and to make recommendations back to the judge about what's in the child's best interest. So if you have children or if you remember being a child, <laughs> there are plenty of occasions when what you want <laughs> and what's in your best interest are not the same thing. And so in Travis County, um, CASA is appointed as the guardian ad litem. So the children that we serve have an attorney whose job it is to tell the court what their client wants. Um, and then CASA's job is to tell the court what's in that child's best interest. And we do that, our volunteers do that, by really getting to know the child, getting to know their family, getting to know their teachers, talking to their doctors. CASA, because of our role and because we're court-appointed, 
has access to information that would otherwise be confidential. So we can see school records, we can see medical records, and our job, what the judges who appoint us expect, is that we are going to get to know everything and everyone who is connected to this child Mm. and gather information to bring back to the judge, here are our concerns and here are our recommendations about what should happen for this child's best interest. Mm. Um, And so our volunteers, you know, they get to know the kids, they get to know teachers, parents, um, they talk to the child's attorney, they talk to the doctors, they're really deeply understanding what's going on. And then every three or four months, there's a court hearing so that the judge can check in on what's going on, how how are we making progress in this case. And CASA volunteers prepare a written court report um, and then speak to the judge directly in that hearing. Hmm. So just procedurally that I'm, I'm clear on how this generally works. So um, it, Child Protective Services files a, lo- files a lawsuit on behalf of the children when, when they believe there is reasonable probability that there's abuse in the home. Yes. And then after that lawsuit is successful, then a lawyer is appointed and CASA gets brought in. The filing of the lawsuit triggers, triggers all of what comes next. The procedures, okay. Yes. And and at that time, are, are the children automatically removed from the home or that's still they're still often living with the parents that may may actually be abusive towards them? They are not automatically removed. So um, in... In the law, and our judges here in Travis County take this very seriously, there is a presumption that um, we want to use um, what's called the least restrictive environment. And so if, for example... Um, Child Protective Services or CASA or the judge, if the judge determines that this child um, can stay in their home and we're going to order the parents to get this or that kind of service to address whatever concerns have brought all this about in the first place, then the kids can stay at home. So one example is... um, we participate in um, the Travis County um, Family Drug Treatment Court, and that is a specialty court for parents for whom substance a substance use disorder is the primary reason that they're involved with Child Protective Services. And for parents who... Um, agree to go into that specialty court, they have the opportunity to go into residential recovery with their children. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in other cases, maybe the parents, um, maybe what happens is that the kids are not with their parents temporarily, but maybe they're placed with grandparents or an aunt and uncle or uh, close friends of the family so that they are with someone they know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's our first that's our first priority. That is the court's first priority. The goal when it is safe is for kids to be with their families. That is the goal. That is our goal. That is the court's goal. That is Child Protective Services goal. And so part of what we do at CASA when we get appointed to a case and we take court appointments automatically to any new case that comes in with a child at least three years old or older. So any new case that comes in um, that meets that criterion, we're automatically appointed and we get an email. They come in every single day from the court saying CASA's been appointed as the guardian ad litem to this new case. And one of the very first things we do is try to talk to the family, try to identify who are relatives that might be perhaps placement options or might just be supports for the biological parents to try to keep that family unit together. Hmm. Um, So that's one of the very first things we do when the kids are old enough to, you know, kind of identify folks. We obviously also ask them, you know, who is important to you in your life? Who do you feel safe with? You know, do you... And and when they talk about, you know, Aunt Mary, okay, well, so does Aunt Mary live here in Austin? Because then we're trying to locate Aunt Mary yep. so that we can really help keep the kids connected to people they know and to their families. And, and in the ideal world, we get we can engage relatives to support the family of origin to kind of like all kind of come together to be a support system for those parents so that the family can be reunited. Because a lot of times what happens is that by the time parents are involved with child protective services, you know, there are potentially some things that have gone wrong in their lives and they may have become estranged from their relatives or disconnected somehow. Maybe it's um, substance use, you know, maybe it, maybe there are other kinds of issues that have caused some sort of disconnection. And if we can forge that connection again um, to help support the whole family, that's for the best. And I assume there are instances when Child Protective Services actually files this lawsuit where, you know, the, the abuse of the parent or the alleged abuse of the parent is so obvious and egregious that more drastic action has to take place immediately. Yes. Uh, Yes. How, how quickly, um, you know, depending on on the the details, are children taken out of their home? Depending on what what had happened with them. I mean, the most extreme circumstance is that um, that they are removed immediately. Yeah. You know, there's something um, happening right now, and law enforcement is there, and they call CPS and yeah. say, you know, we're you need to come get these. Their kids. immediate safety yeah. is in danger. Yeah. 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 Okay. Those kinds of cases, I think when people think about CASA and think about the Child Protective Services system, what everyone 
thinks of immediately are, yeah. you know, kind of these terrible things that you see on law and order. Yeah. And um, that's the minority of cases. Most of the most of the cases that we work on are cases of neglect as opposed to abuse. Mm. And um, it's parents who love their kids, um, but for perhaps a variety of reasons, maybe substance use, maybe mental health issues, maybe um, they grew up in foster care themselves and, you know, they're just struggling to provide a safe and appropriate home yeah. for their kids. Um, but it doesn't mean they don't love them and it doesn't mean they don't want to. And so in those, those are the majority of cases. And the, and in those cases, you know, we start from the standpoint of, okay, is there, you know, what kinds of services can be offered to these parents? What kind of supports and helps to help get this family back together? Yeah. And it, Child Protective Services, it, it sounds like, plays an integral role in this process taking place. And it, it, do they get involved initially just through often anonymous reports to them? What, what would typically is the is that first step of bringing the, a, a branch of the government into a child's life to to eventually hopefully try to try to help them right it's reported so okay. there are um most reports of of possible child abuse or neglect come from schools um, teachers and school personnel are mandated reporters. If they believe that a child is being abused or neglected, they are required by law to report it. Mm. Um, healthcare is another big source of reports because they, again, are mandated by law to report suspected abuse or neglect. So, you know, a pediatrician may be making a report um babies who are born drug positive yeah that is an automatic report um and then law enforcement so the three biggest areas of report of of reports are from school healthcare and law enforcement okay I think that's a really good point of clarification of the fact you're right that I think most people when they think of these services getting involved they immediately think of the worst case scenario. And I, I think it's just an important clarification for the public that that is not the standard dynamic. Right. It, it sounds like that tends to be the exception and not the rule. Correct. I mean, we do, we yeah. certainly do have those cases, but they are a very small percentage of the total number of children that we are serving. Yeah. So in those majority of cases where CASA gets involved and begins to have its volunteers invest, investigate, get to know the kids, take time learning about their lives and learning the details about what potentially is best for them before making a, a recommendation to the judge, uh, what what are the typical instances that are causing you know, either long-term or temporary neglect or issues in the family? Is it financial stress? Is it you know, mental health issues? I'm sure it's, it can be all of these things, but what, what is the m more common or most common instance that in your experience happens that, that triggers this entire procedure to, to take place? The most common um, interwoven factors are substance 
abuse, mm. um, domestic violence, and mental health issues among one or both of the parents. Okay. And um, those three often occur all together. Yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly they occur very commonly in pairs. Um, sometimes a substance use disorder is self-medicating because of an underlying mental health issue or um, a trauma response because of domestic violence or, you know, so there's the, those, it, um, those three things occur together yeah. um, a lot. And those are the three most common. The trifecta. Mm-hmm. I, I have to imagine, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but just given the state of the world over the last 12 months that I can only think just instinctively that it has exacerbated substance abuse, domestic abuse, mental health issues, just because the the normality of, of life is no longer available to people. And if you could just talk about what the past 12 months, I mean, we're almost exactly at the year, mm-hmm. one year mark at the time of this conversation of COVID being deemed a pandemic by the World Health Organization. What has the last year of your life and the last year of Casa's life in Austin been like? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's hard to even, um, <laughs> it's hard to even describe. Um, well, so I will start with really positive things. Um, I love your attitude. Because that's incredible always that where you... I start. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll start with the really positive things. Um, and the things that I feel proud of about my colleagues and our volunteers and the system in which we work um, and the things that have been heartwarming. So um, we are almost exactly a year and immediately um, when the lockdown order happened here in Austin, um, the court went virtual immediately. So they pivoted within a week's time from we're going to, we do all hearings in person at the Travis County Courthouse downtown to, okay, here's how it's going to work. If you need a hearing on Zoom, you know, here's your process for requesting that and the court staff will set that up. You can, we can also do hearings by submission, which means email the parties all email the judge with their positions. and, And that is easy to do if there's agreement on different issues. Um, so the court um, right away set up processes so that hearings could continue. Um, and we wouldn't be generating a gigantic backlog because um, all of the cases get a hearing every three or four months. And that's a huge workload for the court. Um we at CASA um, also pivoted really fast and within a week um, moved all of our volunteer recruitment, screening, and training, which had all been done in person, to Zoom. 
And so all of our recruitment, all of our screening, all of our training is now um, through Zoom. And um, we did that in a week and got really good feedback and have been pleasantly surprised at um, how effective that has been over the last 12 months. Um, And our staff um, has worked over the last year to develop a flexible and evolving set of guidelines for how we visit kids. Um, Because part of our job is to connect with the kids and see them um, and make sure that they're okay. And so um, we have done that over the last year mostly virtually, but we do have protocols for seeing kids in person. And we are now going to a place where that's the, where we are going back to the presumption that kids will be seen in person. Um, Masks, socially distant, very protective, but um, we have updated our COVID protocols as the county has gone into different stages and and um, made sure that we could provide to volunteers the guidance on what was expected of them. Um, because not only, obviously, do we want to keep the volunteers safe and the kids safe, we also want to make sure that the placements where kids are living is safe. And we we don't want CASA to be the one who brings COVID to the home. And then grandma gets sick and the kids have to be moved. That is trauma that they don't need. So we've tried to be really thoughtful about how we keep everybody safe from a public health standpoint, as well as focusing on the safety of the kids that we serve. Um, And our volunteers and my colleagues on the staff have been remarkably resourceful and creative in how they have connected with kids and with their families online through FaceTime or Skype or Zoom or whatever. And um, it's hard to build a rapport um, through that sort of mechanism. Um, But I think our folks have done that remarkably well. And um, we increased the the, the expectation of frequency of visits. So if your visit was virtual, like you need to do that twice as often as you would have done an in-person visit. Um, We also increased um, the, we have a small fund that allows us to give direct financial assistance to families. And we increased that because, um, you know, we had families trying to hold it together, hold their families together and losing jobs, especially in the early days when people were being laid off in droves, losing jobs or, um, being sick and not being able to go to work. And so, you know, we increased the amount of support we were giving in terms of groceries and rent assistance and things like that. Um, 
So we were fortunate that our supporters um, really um, stepped up and helped us um, and believed in what we were doing. So financially, we um, we we did better than I would have expected a year ago. Yeah. Um, so there were a, a lot of bright spots. That said, <laughs> to your point, um, this has been a traumatic experience for everyone, all of us, even those of us with really comfortable lives have experienced losses, large and small, and anxieties and worries, large and small, that we weren't prepared for, that are so far out of our control or feel like they are so far out of our control. And so all of us have have gone through this trauma and we've all been somewhat isolated in doing that. When you think about families who are sort of already struggling in situations of domestic violence, people who are kind of now stuck living with someone who is abusive, um, for children who have been removed from their homes and maybe are living in an institution and now can't have any visitors, um, the level of trauma and isolation that people in those circumstances have experienced is dramatic and extreme. And we will see, I believe, the after effects of that for a long, long time. And um, so I don't think we know yet fully what will be the lasting impact of this. But um, I've, I read somewhere that the rates of depression and the rates of suicide attempts and suicidal ideation among kids generally, just the child population, is rising in pretty stark numbers. So if you're thinking about kids who are vulnerable, thinking about kids who had underlying issues of trauma before the pandemic, it's just going to be that much worse for them. And we have seen an increase in suicide attempts and suicidal ideation among the kids that we serve. In in Travis County specifically, the you know I'm sure every county is different in terms of what its 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 most vulnerable families are are struggling with in terms of addictions and and financial stress. In this part of the country specifically, are there 
Is there a specific drug abuse um, or a substance that is seems to be abused more frequently? Is there a mental health issue that comes up more commonly that triggers CASA getting involved in the lives of children? Like here specifically in your experience and your volunteers' work, what are they seeing? What's what's the word out on the streets of what's really plaguing the community? Um, that's a good question. I don't know that. We here in Travis County, and I think this is probably somewhat true of Texas as a whole, I don't think we have seen the opiate, um, the really dramatic level of destruction caused by opiates in the same in the same way that other parts of the country have. Um, we certainly see some of that, but I don't think it's as severe as in other parts of the country in terms of the um, addiction to prescription drugs. Um, what I think is, what I think exacerbates the challenges for people, vulnerable people in Travis County is less about trends around specific addictions or specific abuse and more about the very stark and getting bigger divide in this community between the affluent people of whom there are many and the people just barely making it. Austin is a very expensive place to live. And, you know, all of us who've lived here a long time feel, or even, you know, all the people who are moving here every day feel really smug about Austin's so great. And now I live here and we're at the top of all of these lists. Um, but that is not a universal experience yeah. for everyone who lives in Travis County. And so I think that socioeconomic divide and the starkness of it is one of the things that is most um, insidious about what happens here because for so many people in Austin, um, it is invisible. They're just not even aware that not everybody has it as good as they do. That was something that I, I wanted to talk to you about is who who the people are, who the families are that that CASA tends to work with. Like, I think you're completely right that it is, uh, th there are tens of thousands of f families in this city that are invisible just because they're not living in the glitzy part of town. They're not connected to the people who have white collar jobs. Um, I didn't want to make the presumption that that those are the people outside of that connected world tend to be the the children who Casa tends to work with. But just to ask you it directly, where disproportionately in the city are um, are the children that tend to uh, you know be a part of the work that that Casa is involved with in Austin? Well, first, let me say that um, child abuse or neglect do not discriminate yeah. and um, and certainly do occur 
in affluent homes. Um, in some respects, um, in those affluent homes, there's also a greater support network and there are greater um, options for getting help. So um, in a family with resources and means, um, sub- a, su- a parent with a substance use disorder um, may have um, the ability through family or through connections or through a nanny or something to have other caregivers making sure that the kids have food and medicine and get to school um, and may be able to seek private treatment. Um, And whereas in a family without those resources, without those external sorts of supports, um, the potential neglect of children becomes more obvious sooner. And then, you know, a school personnel then calls in a report of possible child, child neglect. Um, Additionally, I think we have to recognize um, that there is implicit bias um, in all systems, including the child protection system. And um, it is not unique to Travis County. It is a fact nationwide, but it is pretty bad in Travis County. Um, that disproportionately the children in CPS care are children of color, disproportionate to their population here in Travis County. Um, And that is, um, I think, likely, largely, a function of implicit unconscious bias in many respects in the sense that the they're being reported more frequently than yes. would be common in yes in non communities of color yes it, and when they're being reported it's not particularly accurate like it's it's a more of a knee jerk reaction than something that's actually valid i think there i think that does happen i think there are reports that get made that are a knee jerk reaction um and um and then i think there are reports that don't get made um because um of bias benefiting a different family. So I think there are definitely situations where um, the same treatment of two kids um, would have, would play out differently when someone's making a report based on whether, you know, is this a white kid from an affluent family 
oh, I'm probably not seeing what I think I'm seeing. This can't be, this can't be something I need to call CPS about um, versus an African-American child from a less well-to-do family. You know, people may make assumptions that, oh, I better call CPS about that. Um, so I don't think it is like so much. I, I don't think it is, um, intentional. I think it is unconscious bias that, that all of us carry. Hmm. I want to talk about a couple of terms that, that you've been using throughout the conversation, um, abuse and neglect. I think abuse is something that for the general public is there are examples that come to mind very quickly that I think in most reasonable people's minds would justify the use of that word and its applicability towards a certain type of behavior. I think neglect is something that is a little less so. Um, from a technical perspective, and if you want to talk about abuse from a technical perspective as well, like what falls within and not um, of those words that, that would justify, um, you know, court action, technically speaking, what, how do you define that? And, and when do you know you're seeing it? Well, so those terms are defined in the law. Okay. Um, and the, the arm of child protective services that is charged with, you know, the actual investigations and CASA does not do that. Yeah. So we don't see the reports that come in. We don't know about any case of either abuse or neglect until it's in front of the judge and the judge appoints us. Um, but that when those reports come in of suspected abuse or neglect to the statewide hotline, then Child Protective Services has I don't even know how many thousands of investigators who go out and do an investigation. And both abuse and neglect are defined in the law. And, um, and now, having said that, um, while abuse is um, e more easily defined than neglect, one person's interpretation of medical neglect might be somewhat different than another person's definition of medical neglect, for example. And medical neglect is one of the um, um, possible reasons for, for um, consideration of whether a child should be renew, uh, removed. So if a child has, you know, some sort of serious um, medical condition and their parents or caregivers are not getting them the treatment that they need, that might be a cause for removal. Hmm. I know it sounds like the last year has been a lot of work on your team and, you know, in your, in your statements about them, it sounds like they're, they're doing the best they can to try to adapt to what, what has happened in the last 12 months. You know, for people who are listening to this, who live in Austin, what do you need? What, what, what is it more volunteers? Is it financial support? What, what would your ask be? What would your, I guess, ideal ask be of the community in terms of what, how people can help? Um, well, we always need more volunteers. Yeah. And I think that, and so I'll start there. Um, 
we need more volunteers and we need volunteers from all parts of the community. And you don't have to be a social worker or a lawyer. I mean, we provide the training. Um, and I think for people who read the news or see things um, in the paper about the child abuse um, situation or child protective services, um, you know, sometimes it can feel really overwhelming, like, oh my gosh, this is a huge, big issue. How could I, one person, possibly make a difference? Mm -hmm. Well, being a CASA volunteer is how you can make a difference. Yeah. Um, so always we need more volunteers. Um, financial support is the is you know right behind that. Yeah. Um, because we have professional staff who recruit and screen. Obviously, screening is critically important. Yeah. Train um, and supervise all of those volunteers, and so. Um, financial support to then pay those people um, is the other thing that we need. And then I think, you know, backing up from CASA specifically, um, there are so many ways that you as a person in the community can help families who are struggling. Um CASA is one way. Being a foster parent is another way. We need more foster homes. We need more really good foster homes. Um, we Foster parents need respite care providers. Yeah. Um, we need more um, supports for those families who are kind of struggling to sort of hold it together. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, the aftermath of the snowstorm a month ago, um, we have any number of families who, you know, we want to keep them together. We want to keep their placement stable. And um, a lot of them had pipes that burst and, you know, all the bad things that you hear about. And so we, I saw an email from one of my colleagues the other day that she had connected with the Ur the Austin area Urban League, another really fine organization here, and they had plumbers. And so, you know, they were talking to us about, okay, yes, you, we can connect your families with this sort of little cadre of plumbers that we have. So there are a lot of different ways to support families and help families be safe and as healthy as they can be and together. And, and ultimately that's what all of us wants for ourselves, for our friends, for our own families and for the people that CASA serves. Yeah. And I think you mentioned this earlier that the goal, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, that the goal of CASA is to the goal is to try to keep the family intact. Yes. If that is something that just cannot be done, then then uh, that has to happen. Um, you know, in terms of frequency or percentages, how often when CASA gets involved, does that actually happen? Last year of the cases of the children 
whose cases closed, whose legal cases closed in 2020, 82% of Mm. them ended up either reunified with their parents or permanently living with relatives. I, you know, I think that, you know, it's, it's amazing that there are all of these, that there are some resources available to try to rectify issues that are causing this stuff to happen in the first place. And so, you know, I think you just said 82% of the, of the children end up staying with their families and, and the cases end up closing. I think we would all like to believe that happens. Everybody goes off on their merry way and then there's no residual effect. There's no repeat neglect, no repeat abuse. Um, you've been in this world for a long time, you know, I'm sure that's a naive notion. Um, I guess I'm just curious how naive that is. I mean, like how, how frequently, uh, does CASA get involved? Does the state get involved? And the problems more or less are fixed for good. I have to think that's uncommon and not, not the, not the norm, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, I wouldn't say, you know, fixed for good is a pretty high bar. Sure, that's um, fair. Yeah. So, you know, what I would say is that we do not see that many cases reopen. That does happen. Certainly we see some that reopen, kids come back into care, the family didn't make it. Um, and they've come back into the CPS system. Yeah. But that is not that is not the norm. Mm. It doesn't mean that that family doesn't still have struggles. Yeah. But what what we and the court and child protective services and everybody who's involved are trying to do is to set that family up for as much success as it relates to raising their children as possible. We're not going to be able to um, solve their substance use disorder. That is, you know, each person has to do that for himself or herself. Um, But if we can build supports and help a family understand how um, how you have to focus on sobriety every single day. Yeah. You know, if we can kind of give them the tools and connections so that when we step out of their lives, they've they've got a little foundation yeah. there to take care of themselves. That's, that's really what we're trying that's to do. And it's not like, um, as I say, it's not like they won't struggle, but, um, most of the time when, when cases close and families are reunited, um, we don't, we don't see those kids come back. Yeah. And I think in the, uh, just taking the invert, the inverted, uh, side of these reports that get, uh, you know, called into child protective services, I, I would bet the vast majority of time of time, 
there is a there there. There's something that a responsible adult has noticed about uh, a pediatrician at a doctor's appointment or a neighbor in in terms of behavior in a child or neglect in the parent. Is it ever the case that you come across reports or there are reports made to Child Protective Services that um, you know the judge consults and realizes rather quickly like this was essentially a hoax like there was there wasn't really anything there whether it was like a, a vindictive report that was being made i could see how because oftentimes these are anonymous uh, assertions that it, given human nature there could be acts of just pure vindictiveness or pettiness that could trigger this i, I have to imagine that's really a small percentage it but do, does that happen uh, on occasion okay on occasion i i think that's pretty small um and so when a report comes in um child protective services has different priorities that they give to reports based on the information that they're getting gotcha. about, you know, from whoever's making the report. And so, um, so they will take down all the information and, um, depending on, you know, like, was it something that someone witnessed themselves? So they, you know, prioritize the reports. And based on the priority, then there's a certain amount of time in which an investigator is required to go out and check that out. Gotcha. And so, so I don't know, there, there are these statistics, I don't know them. Um, far more reports come in than children are removed because a lot of times either the report turns out to be unfounded, perhaps not because it was a vindictive thing, but yeah. because, you know, somebody maybe in an excess of caution yeah. made a report and then the investig investigator goes out and says, oh, no, this kid really did fall down and break their arm. Um, and so... So there are far more reports that get made than ultimately end up with children removed and a lawsuit filed. Right, right. Yeah, right. Because the lawsuit has to get filed to trigger the right. involvement of CASA in the first right. place. For people in town who are listening to this and are interested in, in being a volunteer, talk about, if you can, um, the expectations of volunteers for themselves in terms of time commitment, What what's required to even be... Um, to qualify for being a volunteer? Okay, all, all yeah. So you have to be 21 okay. to be a CASA volunteer. And um, you have to have a pretty clear criminal background. Um, obviously, we do a criminal background check. Um, we do a pretty extensive reference check. Hmm. So the screening piece is really important. Um, you go through, you fill out an application. It's pretty in-depth. Um, and you are interviewed by one of the professional staff here at CASA. And that is a screening. Um, that's a piece of the screening is a personal interview that is pretty in-depth. Um, and then, you know, if you clear all of that, then you are admitted into our training. And the training is a 36-hour 
training um, that right now is all on Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> um, later in the year, we will probably offer in-person um, opportunities again. Can you again. imagine? <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I, I look forward to that day um, when there are people in, in our office. Um, but right now it's all on Zoom, a 36-hour training, and then you take an oath um, before a judge. So CASA volunteers are... Um, you know, appointed by the court. So we all, they're all sworn in by a judge. And, um, and the training, we are, we train all the time. So we have constant opportunities for training. But that is, that piece of it is probably the most sort of rigid time commitment with the least flexibility. Um, Once you've gotten through the training and you've been sworn in, then you are assigned to a case. And that would be either a single child or a group of siblings. Um, And you are matched up with the kids on your case and someone, one of my colleagues who's your supervisor. And at that point, um, other than court hearings or professional meetings like with Child Protective Services, most of the work that a volunteer does on their case is pretty flexible Mm. in terms of scheduling. Mm. So you can see the kid in the evening or on the weekends. Um, You know, you can email the teacher on your lunch break or talk to the doctor, you know, um, over the phone for 20 minutes or, you know, it's very, very flexible. The court hearings obviously are set, Mm. um, but those are set three months in advance so you know when that hearing is going to take place and then there are you know potentially meetings with child protective services or meetings with the school maybe Um, but again those would be set in advance Um, and so um People have an image in their minds of, oh my gosh, my schedule, I could never do that. And it's more accommodating than people think. Um, On average, our volunteers spend about 10 to 20 hours a month Hmm. working on their cases. Um, And, you know, some months it's going to be closer to 20, other months it may be closer to 10. Hmm. Um, But a lot of it is you can schedule around your own work. More than half of our volunteers do work. Um, Our volunteers, um, I think 60% of our volunteers are under the age of 50. So they're all, you know, in the work world um, and fitting this in with their jobs and their own kids and, uh, whatever else they're doing. And the, the volunteers tend to have one, one person or one group of siblings at a time. And then whenever that case gets closed, they move on to another. Group. Exactly. Is that, is that correct? Exactly. Okay. Yes. Last question I want to ask you is, you know, you've been doing this now for quite a while and I'm sure you've done plenty of interviews with, journalists and people at newspapers and and just curious people in the community who have wanted to know about what you do. And we've talked extensively for quite a while now. Given your experience, given what you know about the organization, 
what what questions do you not get asked that you wish you could ask or maybe put another way what what information do you think should be out there about casa and the work you do that isn't particularly well known that you think is important for people to understand Oh, thank you for asking that. You know, one of the things that I think people assume um, about CASA because of what they assume when they hear about child abuse and neglect um, is that I think many people would be surprised when they hear us say that our goal, whenever it is safe, is to have that kid reunited with their family. And so I think that is something that people have assumptions about um, that are not true. And so I think that's hugely important um, because kids, you know, kids, um, all of us, want to know where we belong. We yeah. want to know where we come from. We want to know who are the people who are like us. And um, so if it's if it's safe, then that's what's in kids' best interest. Um, so I think that's one of the primary things that people um, assume and that we're working to try to you know, kind of broaden people's um, thinking about that. Um, I think the other thing that people make assumptions about is that being a CASA volunteer would be really hard, that it would be emotionally really difficult and painful. People will say, oh my gosh, that's such great work you do. I don't know how you do that. I don't think I could do it. Well, there are hard days for sure. Yeah. And there definitely are some sad situations. But what you see more of is people's resilience, people's um, genuine love for their kids, um, even when they're not doing a good job of being a parent, um, there's so much good and so much positive that's possible. And so many, we talk among the staff sometimes about, you know, the small wins um, that I think the notion of this as being sort of just relentlessly sad yeah. is um, is not true and an unfortunate assumption. Maybe I'll squeeze one more question in here then because it, it, I mean, it's noticeable just having met you a couple hours ago that it's clear that this is a calling for you, that this is something that you care a lot about and you have a very cheery disposition about the whole <laughs> subject. Um, I... I you know, and you're right, like you deal with a lot and the organization deals with a lot. How do you think you are able and your staff are able to maintain, you know, a, a, just a general cheeriness about the work, given the nature of the work? Uh, you know, anything you could say to that, I think would be interesting. Well, you know, we're better at that some days than other days, for <laughs> sure. Um, I, I have my moments of not being cheery. Um 
you know, all of us as humans, and certainly anyone who wants to work as a volunteer or as a professional, helping vulnerable or victimized people need to build our own resilience. And the ability to continue to nurture your own resilience, your own coping skills is um, an important life skill for everyone, in my opinion, and is key to being able to do this particular work. Um, so I am a very resilient person. Um, and I think additionally, and this is related in my opinion to resilience, you know, you can choose the things that you focus on. And in any given day, there are sad stories and happy stories. And on many days, because we need to engage and do something about it, um, we spend a lot of time focusing on the sad stories and focusing on the worries. I personally believe, and what enables me to keep doing this work, is that you have to be able to bring yourself up from that and remind yourself of the positive outcomes. And, um, you know, I'll tell you a quick story. So a few years ago, um, we were working, Casa was working with a, a, a girl who was living in um, a residential treatment center, which is an institution, um, ther a therapeutic institution. Um, they are intended to help kids who have really severe trauma and who have behavioral challenges related to that trauma that keep them from being successful in a more home-like setting. So there were some concerns that we had about this particular um, institution and kind of some of their practices and policies based on things we had heard from kids there. And so a couple of us went down to make a visit to this institution. Um, and I went along, which is like, I don't usually do that, but I, I went on this particular excursion. Um, and um, so we talked to some of the kids that we were appointed to who were living at this institution. And we talked with this one um, girl and she was delightful. And I remember her so vividly. This was a few years ago. And, um, she was just really engaging. And um, so I have kind of 
periodically I will check in with my colleagues or I'll see an email about some milestone that has happened in her life. And last week, there was an email that went around about how the volunteer who has worked with this girl for four years, so one CASA volunteer has been assigned to this girl for four years and has, you know, kept up with her every different placement she's had and advocated for all of her needs and um, school and placement and therapeutic and all of her different needs. And, um, and we, CASA, had also kind of engaged in some work to try to find relatives because that's part of what we do because we don't want this girl to um, live in institutions forever and we would rather she didn't just age out of the foster care system. So we've been, you know, working to find families and um, our team found her mom who had given her up a long, long time ago. And um, they have now reconnected and have a relationship. And um, this case is probably now going to close Hmm. with this girl going home to her mom, who is now able to provide a safe and appropriate home when she couldn't before. And um, and that one case has had all the gamut of sad stories and worrisome stories and happy stories. And um, you have to be able to preserve in your mind those moments of hope and generosity and gratitude to carry you forward to the next hard situation. Yeah. Well, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say I I, I wish you the best and I have a lot of admiration and I know a lot of other people do for the work that you guys do. So um, keep it up. I know it's been a, a hell of a year, but thank you for, thank you for the time. Thank you for sharing the, you know, your story and the story of Casa and, um, you know, best of luck moving forward. And hopefully there are more of those stories that you just ended with, uh, coming around the bend sometime soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. <laughs>